For those of you here that were here uh, last uh, Sunday, you know we had the uh, Chattahoochee County football team uh, with us. Just want you to know I did have the opportunity to attend their game uh, Friday night and uh, was able to take them those uh, devotional books that we uh, gave each member of the team as a gift from Edgewood Baptist Church. So just continue to pray for those young men. Uh, I believe they're going to actually uh, do that devotional together as a team. And so uh, very, very thankful and uh, about the uh, opportunity we have to influence and uh, impact them. Uh, of course, one of their coaches, Jody Allen, is a member of the church, and I know he has a real heart for those young men as well. So just continue to, uh, continue to pray for them. Well, we do continue uh, our series, uh, Telling Others the Good News. And uh, today we come to a very practical lesson, lesson three in this series, on what the good news is and how to tell others about it. But before I get into that, let me just pause a moment to share with you uh, three uh, factors which uh, strongly motivated me to share this sermon series on telling the good news about Jesus. And the first reason is this. I do believe, and uh, I'm, I'm pointing the finger at myself as well, that as Christians, uh, we have neglected uh, the priority of sharing the gospel of Christ uh, with non-Christians, and we need to return uh, to that priority. You know, today in America, I think we're all aware of the fact that the Christian biblical worldview is no longer dominant in our culture and has been replaced by a, a very secular worldview. And by worldview, I'm referring to a person's uh, beliefs uh, system uh, that determines uh, how they view the world, how they view themselves, uh, the, uh, the way they live, the decisions they make. Uh, and, of course, the Christian worldview is one where a person's beliefs convictions and decisions are shaped uh, by the truths of the Bible. Uh, now, this raises the question, well, how has Christianity become so marginalized in the United States of America? And there are many answers that you could give to that question, but I personally believe the primary reason is that although Christians, we have fought very valiantly in many ways uh, to maintain the moral values of Christianity in our culture, we have neglected the priority of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that has the power to reconcile a person to God and change the human heart. In other words, we have tried very hard in our culture to maintain the fruits of Christianity while neglecting the root, which is the gospel of Christ. But the reality is that our culture will never embrace the values of Christianity without being reconciled and submitted to the Lord of Christianity. And that will never happen except through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith comes through the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the second motivation is the realization that living a godly life before unbelievers is not enough. And I think too often within Christian circles, we have this idea that if we just maintain a godly testimony, uh, that is enough. And that is a good thing to do. Uh, that provides the credibility for the sharing of the gospel. But we must not only show it, we must uh, tell it. Uh, you may live the most Christ-like life of anyone on planet Earth. Uh, Non-Christians may notice the difference, and uh, they may even be drawn to that something they see in your life that is different, but, it, but reality is they don't have any idea how to attain it unless somebody tells them. I am a great example of that, uh, my own testimony. Uh, uh, I won't, some of you have heard it in detail. I'm not going to go into that. The point is this. Prior to my conversion... I got dropped right into the middle of a Bible college where the overwhelming majority of those students, professors, love Jesus with all their heart. I mean, he was their first love, greatest passion and pursuit. And I'm dropped right in the middle of this, in that environment. 
And uh, in time, that began to impact my life. And to be very, very honest, I did see the difference in their lives. And there was a stark contrast, of course, between their life and my life. And I got to the place where I wanted what they had. I mean, I was hungry for it. I was thirsty for it. But I didn't have a clue how to attain it, how, to, how that could become mine until somebody finally shared with me the good news of Jesus Christ. And I heard that precious verse out of 1 John 5 that, you know, he's written these things that we might know we have eternal life, that he that has the Son has life, but he that has not the Son hath not life. And when that gospel was presented to me, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and, and uh, what that could accomplish in me, and I saw that uh, I was required to turn from my sin, to place my trust in Christ, uh, that's where salvation came to Andy Merritt and where the change began, the uh, transformation. So it's very, very important that we realize that it's important not only to live the gospel, but to share it. And then the third motivation is that every single believer needs to be equipped on how to tell others the good news about Jesus Christ. Uh, we have relied too much on program and event evangelism. Now, don't misunderstand me. I have no problem with any of that. I thank God for all of that. Uh, Throughout my Christian life, I've been involved in many different evangelistic efforts. I remember when I first came to Christ, I was taught how to use the four spiritual laws. And I began to go on the University of Maryland campus and engage students in conversation uh, to be able to share with them the gospel uh, of Christ. I had the opportunity to lead my first individual to Christ uh, by using uh, the four spiritual laws uh, in downtown D.C., in uh, sharing with a 16-year-old uh, runaway. Uh, I got involved in evangelism explosion. I've taught that. Uh, I've led that. Uh, the Grow Ministry, the Faith Ministry, there have been crusades. You think of the Billy Graham Crusades. How can we not but praise God for all of that? So I'm not saying anything negative about any of those programs, any of those events, the simple point I'm making is when you read the New Testament, the heart of evangelism is every single believer acquiring what? An evangelistic lifestyle where we see that we are to be fishers of men, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that we have been called to be God's witness, again, not only to live the gospel, but to tell the gospel as well. Now, before we get into today's message, let's very, very briefly review what we looked at last Sunday. Last Sunday's lesson was on my responsibility and God's in telling others the good news of Jesus Christ. And last week we saw that the Christian's responsibility is to bring Christ to non-Christians through our contact with them in conversation. It's God's responsibility to bring non-Christians to Christ. We can't do that. We can only bring Christ to them through contact and conversation. Only God can bring that non-Christian to Christ through conviction and conversion. And then we looked at the three distinct players involved in evangelism, the non-Christian, God, and the believer, the Christian. Concerning the non-Christian, of course, this is the one that as Christians we seek to tell the good news to. And what we need to understand about non-Christians is their condition, that they are spiritually dead, separated from God, alienated from the life of God, not only in this life, but that is their destiny for eternity, to know eternal punishment unless they embrace Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. They're spiritually blind to the truth of God. They are spiritually lost. That is their condition, and we talked about that uh, last Sunday. And then we turned our attention to God. And, of course, God is the one who goes before us. He goes with us and after us as we share with others the good news of Jesus Christ. And we saw God's responsibility is, as we said, to draw non-Christians to Christ. And we saw that he does that in fundamentally two ways. First, God draws non-Christians through the conviction 
of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit moves upon their lives and begins to draw them to Christ, and then also through the inherent power of the gospel itself, that these are not just words. As Jesus said, they have life, they have spirit. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. So God uses both the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and the inherent power of the gospel to awaken, to bring that non-believer to faith in Jesus Christ. He also is the one that gives new life. We can't do that. He only can convert. He can only bring the new birth. He can only bring regeneration, the change and transformation of a person, giving them new longings, new passions, new desires, which is all a consequence, a result of the new birth and embracing Jesus as Lord and as Savior. And then we saw last week that he desires all to be saved. As Adora quoted earlier, for God so loved, what? The world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then we looked at the Christian. And, of course, the Christian is God's partner in telling the good news. God has no other mouthpiece than you and me as believers. He is the vine, Jesus said, we're the branch. As a branch, we must extend God's presence in this world to express the character of Christ, that Christ's life would be reproduced through us, that the lost would find nourishment, that the lost would find their hunger and their thirst fulfilled through a relationship with Christ as we share with them. So just as the branch, of course, is totally dependent upon the vine, and we cannot do anything apart from the vine, God also has entrusted responsibility to us. We're to extend that life, express that life, share that life with others here on planet Earth. And so we saw that we're God's servant to proclaim the way of salvation to the lost. We saw that we're God's sower, that our job is to sow the seed, is to sow God's truth. Again, we can't bring conviction, we can't bring conversion, but we can certainly share that gospel message that has the inherent power uh, to bring a person to faith in Christ through the conviction and conversion of the Holy Spirit. And then we saw that we're God's witness. And a witness, you don't have to be a great expert in the Scriptures I'm not saying that we don't want to give ourselves to diligent study in the Scriptures, but a witness simply tells what he knows, uh, what has happened to him, what he's seen, what he's heard. And uh, that's what God has called us to do, to share with others uh, what God has done in our lives, what we know of Him, to provide the opportunity for them to come to know them. And so the conclusion last week is that a Christian's responsibility, again, is to bring Christ to non-Christians. And we do that by being and here, and a key word, and it will never happen without us getting to this word. We do that by being intentional in the routine of life to make acquaintances, to build friendships, and engage non-Christians in conversations. As we do, trusting God that He will open a door to tell the good news of the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the uh, messages in the future in this series, coming up not too far away, is how to engage non-Christians in spiritual conversations and then turn those conversations into an opportunity to present, to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. And, of course, God's responsibility, again, to bring non-Christians to Christ. God alone is the soul winner. God alone is the soul winner. Salvation is from the Lord, and then the Christians, the non-Christians' responsibility to trust Christ. All's been done. Nothing for them to do but to put their trust, their faith in who Jesus is and what He accomplished for them. Now, I hope you have your sermon notes. Uh, I'm giving you a lot because I'm. Uh, my purpose this morning is to actually equip you. Uh, with a method to be able to share the good news in your personal life as you interact with uh, non-Christians. I don't want any believer here at Edgewood Baptist Church to say that they've never had the opportunity to learn how to do this, what to say when God opens that door and provides that opportunity. So what is the good news and how to tell others about it? So uh, look there with me at those uh, verses there from uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 
in your sermon notes what the good news is, and let's read those together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Paul said, I, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So this passage is all about the gospel, what it is, which I preached to you. So Paul said, I, This is what I've shared, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. It means that uh, you need to experience true or exercise true biblical faith in Jesus. It's not just, as we're going to see, it's not just mere intellectual assent, but it goes much deeper than that. It's a term of putting your trust in Him. He says, For I did, and here's the gospel, verse 3, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Some of those that Christ appeared to had died by the time that He wrote this. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. You remember on the road to Damascus when uh, uh, Jesus abruptly interrupted Paul's life. And, uh, and, brought, and opened his darkened, blinded eyes uh, to his glorious light. Now, what I want you to see, the four verbs in that passage referring to Christ literally define the good news. And so let's just walk through. The four verbs referring to Christ in that passage define the good news. And the first one is this, Christ died. In other words, when we talk about the gospel... And in telling others about the gospel, it all evolves around, of course, first the death of Christ. Verse 3 there, where it says, He died for our sins according to our Scriptures. Now, notice two things. First, it says He died, what? For our sins. In other words, He died on our behalf, in our place, for the penalty of our sin. If you have your Bible, I would like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because this one verse probably sums it up as well or better than any other scripture uh, in the Bible, any other verse in the Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 21 uh, reads, He, talking about God, made Him, that's referring to Jesus. So God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The simplest way I know how to put it is this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He took your sin upon Himself. He became what you are in the eyes of His Father. And as a result of the fact that He bore your sins on the cross, God the Father treated His Son just as if He had lived your life, which deserved what? Judgment, punishment. And that's why Jesus was crucified. That's why Jesus died, because in those moments, He who knew no sin, He became sin. He became what you and I are in order that He might die and take the punishment and the judgment that we deserve. But it doesn't end there. In order that notice, it says that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So Jesus, through His death, not only paid for the penalty of our sin, died in our place, took the punishment for us, but then all His goodness, all His righteousness was literally deposited into our account. In other words, God the Father treated His Son on the cross just as if He had lived your life so that now He could treat you just as if you had lived Jesus' sinless life. And that's how He sees you. He sees you through Jesus as one whose sins have been forgiven, paid for, whose righteousness has been, Christ's right has been imputed to. And that is what brings reconciliation. And in that reconciliation, that's what brings regeneration, the new birth. 
and that transformation that only God can bring to the human heart. So he died for our sins, and notice it says, according to the Scripture. Now, this is important. At the time that he wrote this, they didn't have the uh, New Testament form. So when he refers to according to the Scripture, what is he referring to? The Old Testament Scripture. And there are many Old Testament Scriptures that prophesy concerning the death of Jesus Christ. And probably one of the most prominent is the Isaiah 53 passage. And uh, let me just, I'm not going to read all of those verses, but let me just read verses 5 through 8. But he was pierced through. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? For our iniquities. The chastening or the judgment, the punishment for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That is the essence of sin. Forsaking God to do your own thing. But the Lord has caused what? As we just saw, the iniquity of us all to fall on Him, to fall on Jesus. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away, and it's for His generation who considered, notice now, that He was cut off out of the land of living. That's referring to death. Why? For the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. So Jesus died on our behalf for our sins according to the Scripture. And then this, go move to the second point, the second verb that's mentioned about Christ. Not only died, He was buried that we see in verse 4. Now why does it mention that He was buried? Burial is the proof of what? Death. It's just that simple. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, and then He was buried, which is the proof of death. They put Him in a tomb. They sealed that tomb after His crucifixion, after He uh, cried out, It is finished, and uh, commended Himself to His Father and breathed His last. And then the third verb, Christ was what? Raised. Raised. And He was raised on the third day. In other words, Christianity rests on historical fact. And there's as much historical evidence concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ than most other things that we believe in historically. So our faith rests on history, on Jesus who left heaven, came to this earth as a man that could be seen, that could be touched. You could talk with him. And they crucified him. And he was buried. And he rose again, and again, according to the Scripture. And again, referring to the Old Testament Scripture. And one of the places uh, that I'm certain is being referred to there is Psalm uh, 16, which is a wonderful psalm of David. And let me read for you verses 8 through 11. He says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also, listen now, will dwell securely. Why? Because you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Thou will make me to know the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. Now, how do we know that that's referring to the resurrection of Christ? Because if you go to Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes that very passage uh, uh, as proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, let me begin reading at verse uh, 22. He reads, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know this man Jesus delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death and God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power 
And then here's his proof. For David says of him, and David quotes Psalms, and then uh, Peter quotes Psalm 16. I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, and he is my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. You have made me to know the paths of life, and you will make me be full of gladness with thy uh, presence. And then he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And in his tomb is with us to this day. And his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, he's saying, he obviously wasn't referring to himself because he did die. And he was buried, put in a tomb, and, he, and his body's remained in that tomb. And then he goes on, so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and what's the last verb? Christ appeared. In other words, just like burial is proof of death, what's the proof of resurrection? He appeared. He could be seen with these eyes. And that's what's mentioned there in that 1 Corinthians 15. It says Peter saw him. And then there were over 500 that saw him and all the apostles, including myself. So the proof of the resurrection was the eyewitness accounts of over 500 people. That's why you have an historian like Josephus, one of the greatest historians of that day, who is not a believer, attested to the fact as an historical record that Jesus did die on the cross, that he was placed in a tomb, but he rose on the third day and appeared to many eyewitnesses. Therefore, that next statement in your notes, the good news or gospel by which we are saved is simply this. Get it down. Christ died for our sins and rose again. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins and he rose again. He's alive. Christ died for our sins and rose again. Now, move on in your notes. What is God asking non-Christians to do in response to the good news? Simply to respond, even as we saw last week, in saving faith. That's that blank. Saving faith, which sort of involves three things. Let's look at that together. The first is knowledge of the person and work of Christ. So the gospel is Christ died for our sins and rose again. So what is God asking non-Christians to do in response to the good news? To respond in saving faith. That saving faith first involves knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, verse 24, we read this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. And then the Romans 10 passage said faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, hearing about Jesus Christ precedes faith. In other words, if I'm going to become converted, if I'm going to become saved, the key is what the object of my faith. What am I putting my trust in? What am I placing my faith in? Is it a reliable source? So hearing always precedes faith. Hearing the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he did, his deity and his humanity, that he was the Son of God who left earth, came and left heaven, came to earth as a man, and what he did, that he did die and he rose again. For the sins of humanity. But it's not just enough to have a knowledge of who he is, what he did. The next thing, acceptance. And when I say acceptance, I'm talking about acceptance of the person of work of Christ. In other words, becoming convinced of the truths and claims of Christ as Savior and Lord. John 1, 12 says, as many as what? Received him. 
To them gave he the power, the authority to become the children of God. And that word received has the idea of, of uh, accepting him in terms of being convinced of who he is, being convinced of his claims. So, yes, I got to know who he is and what he, and what he claimed to do for us. But then I have to accept that, that that is really true. I have to become convinced that, yes, he did die. Yes, he did rise again from the dead. Yes, and he did that to save me. But then, one last element, what? Trust. As I learn about this Jesus who's to be the object of my faith, as I accept his claims being true, then I must put my trust in the person and work of Christ to save. Now, now listen, folks, it's very, very important. A person can know about Jesus, can know about his death, burial, and resurrection. They can even be convinced that that's true. But they're not saved until they put their trust in Jesus. And trust there is, this is, notice, submitting to, depending on, and relying on Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. Submitting to, depending on, relying in Christ alone for salvation. All's been done for Christ. There's nothing left for me to do but to place my trust in who He is and what He accomplished for me. Now, move on in your notes, and this is uh, the main thing I wanted to commit to you, and I'll be able to get through this very, very uh, speedily because this is basically your homework assignment. Uh, I'm going to share with you right now a method that you can use to actually tell people the good news about Jesus Christ when God opens that door. Now, if you already have a method that you're very comfortable with, stay with it. You know, whether it's four spiritual laws, whether it's evangelism explosion or grow or faith, uh, Billy Graham's peace with God, uh, there, there are many, many methods out there. I do personally believe that it's important for every believer to uh, really become accustomed with a method, not that you're going to be just tied into that. You need to take what I'm going to share. This needs to be melded with your own personality. You can be very flexible with it. it we're not talking about something rigid. But I do think it's important. First, you've got to have that method that you're comfortable with, that you're confident in. And then only when you're comfortable and confident, then can you, you know, be flexible with that. And, uh, and, but I think this can be very, very beneficial to many of you that have never been taught exactly uh, how to tell the good news of Jesus to others. So just, let's just walk through this together. I've adapted this from uh, Evantel Ministries. Uh, I, I love this ministry. The way I became associated with them, uh, you know my involvement with uh, pregnancy centers across the nation. And uh, most of our pregnancy centers have uh, used this wonderful ministry uh, to provide equipping and training uh, for our staff and volunteers and uh, equipping them to share the good news with the girls that come in. Uh, but the primary ministry of Evantel is to the church and to mobilize the church in being equipped to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So look at the opening question. Now again, in a message in a couple of weeks... We're going to talk about how to engage non-Christians in spiritual conversations. And then we're going to be talking about, as you get in that conversation, then how can you turn it to provide an opportunity to share what we're about to talk about right now? So, you know, we'll be dealing with that. But right now I want you to see, okay, when the opportunity avails itself, when God opens that door, what do you say? And here it is. Here's at least... One method that you can use that I think can be very beneficial. The opening question. Has anyone ever taken a Bible and shown you how you can know you're going to heaven? May I? And again, I stated this last week. You know, we think that America has been inundated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I challenge that. Yes, they know about Jesus. They know much about uh, his life in many ways. But I doubt that many people, non-Christians in the United States of America, have a really good understanding of the gospel that's ever really been presented to them in a very clear, precise way. 
And this gives you that opportunity to do that. So once God opens that door, great opening question. Has anyone ever taken the Bible and shown you how you can know that you're going to heaven? May I? And notice, remember, get permission to proceed. We want to be tactful. We want to be graceful. Uh, you can't push the door open. Uh, we're looking for those divine appointments. We're looking for the doors that God uh, opens. And uh, so be, be tactful, be gracious. And then the transition. If, you know, they give you that permission, and, and most will, because, again, we're putting this in the context. You've built a, a somewhat of a relationship or an acquaintance or a friendship. Uh, you've, you know, you've made a turn, and there's this open door, and most of them will say yes. And here's the transition. You know, the Bible contains both bad news and good news. The bad news is something about you and me, and the good news is something about God. And let's talk about the bad news first. And this is why this is just called, this particular method, the bad news, good news. Uh, so the Bible contains both bad news and good news. Uh, the bad news, sadly, is something about you and me, but the good news is something about God. So let's talk about the bad news first. And you'll notice uh, on the bad news, good news, there's two points for each. Each point, there's a scripture and there's an illustration. So... The first bad news, we are all sinners. We're all sinners. The scripture is Romans 3, 23, for all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The illustration is the rock. You won't see this on the overhead, just too much verbiage, but it's there in your sermon notes written out for you. You know, when the Bible says that you and I have sinned, it means that our inner character and our outer conduct, in our, we, we've lived contrary to God's character and conduct. The word sin in the Bible actually means to miss the mark. In other words, God is perfect and we are not. Now, let me explain. Suppose each of us was to pick up a rock. And, and I would say to you, we'll throw our rocks and we'll hit the North Pole. Well, you might throw farther than I, or I might throw farther than you, but neither of us would what? Hit the North Pole. Uh, both of us would fall short. So when the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it means that God has set a standard that every one of us must meet. And that standard is God himself. We need to be as holy as he's holy, as perfect as he is perfect. But it doesn't matter how religiously we live, how good we are, or how hard we work. We can never meet that standard. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sadly, here's another transition here. Sadly, the bad news gets even worse. And that brings us to the second point of bad news. The penalty of sin is death. So we're all sinners. It's the first then. And the penalty of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The illustration is simply entitled wages. Very simple, but it drives the point home. Suppose you were to work for me, and I paid you $50 for the work that you accomplished for me. $50 would be your what? Your, your wages, your, your, your payment for what you did for me. That's what you've earned. The Bible is saying that because you and I have sinned, we've earned what? Death. We're going to die. And not only are we going to die, but we're going to be separated from God to suffer eternal punishment. So we're all sinners. The penalty of sin is death. And then here's the transition point. And I know I'm moving quickly through this, but... Uh, I want to be aware of my uh, time. But again, the key is for you to take this and for you to master it yourself. Here's a transition point now into the good news. You know, I think you agree with me. That's bad news. But after the Bible gives the bad news, it gives the good news. And here it is. Since there's no way you could come to God, the Bible says that God decided to come to you, that God decided to come to you. And here's the first good news. 
Christ died for you. Christ died for you. The scripture, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The illustration, great illustration, cancer. Let's say you were in the hospital dying of cancer. I could come to you and say, I want to do something for you. We'll take the cancer cells from your body and put them in my body. What would happen to me? And you provide them the opportunity to respond. Well, yes, I, I would die. What would happen to you? Well, yes, you would live. Why? Because I took your cancer. I took the thing causing your death, placed it upon myself, and I died as your substitute. The Bible is saying Christ came into the world, took the sin that was causing your death, placed it upon himself, died in your place as your substitute. The third day he rose from the dead to prove his claims to be God and that sin and death had been conquered. Now, just as the bad news gets even worse, the good news gets even better. And that takes us to the second point of good news. You can be saved through faith in Christ by placing your trust in his death burial and resurrection in the scripture is Ephesians 2 8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast in the illustration the chair and you can just simply say the word grace means undeserved or unmerited favor Saved means to be rescued or delivered from the penalty and power of sin. Since Jesus Christ has died for your sins, God can now give you heaven as a free gift. Now, you may, may be wondering, what is faith? The word faith means to submit to, to depend on, to rely on, to trust in Christ alone for salvation. For example, when you sit in a chair, you're what? You're placing your trust in that chair to hold you up as you sit in it. Putting your faith in Christ means trusting in Him, in Him alone to save you. Not trusting in your church membership or baptism, your good life or your efforts to win God's approval, but trusting in Christ alone. Your trust has to be in the one who died for you and arose. It is then that God gives you heaven as a free gift. So there's the bad news the good news, and then the concluding question. Is there anything keeping you from trusting Christ right now? If they say, yes, there are issues, what I would suggest, have them list them so that you can show them how much you really care about them uh, by finding the answers and hopefully getting together when the door's already been open. And it would probably be very easy to say, hey, you know, let me know. And if, and if you're not ready to respond right there, let me get back with you. Let's, let's continue this, this conversation. If they say yes, ask the person, this is what I would suggest, if they say yes, that they, they do want to trust Christ, ask the person to tell you how to go to heaven. How you can, how, tell, let them tell you how you can go to heaven to make sure they understood. You understand? In other words, they say, yes, I would like to trust Christ. Well, I want to ask that person to tell me how I can go to heaven, to, just to make sure they understood, that they're, they're, they, they've, they've heard the bad news, the good news. Uh, they do have a good knowledge of that. They have accepted that, those claims, and they're ready uh, to trust. And then the decision to trust Christ. Would you like to pray right now and tell God you are trusting His Son as your Lord and Savior? And if the person answers yes, Either lead them in prayer or have them pray themselves. And, and remember, this is so important. It's not the prayer that saves, but Christ and Christ alone. Prayer is simply the means by which we tell God we are putting our trust in Christ alone for salvation. You understand? So it's not a, it's not a prayer that saves 
It's the fact we're putting our trust in God. Prayer is just a means to tell God that we are putting our trust in Him. And then if they do pray that prayer, if they do put their trust in Christ, I would encourage you uh, to conclude by just briefly touching on the assurance of salvation. Uh, You could have the new convert read Uh, Or you could read to them John 5, 24 that we alluded to earlier. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Notice, he who hears my word. Did you do that? Did you hear the words, the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he did for you? And believes him who sent me. Did you believe what God said? And did you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? And notice it says, if you did, has eternal life. Does that mean later or right now? Notice, has, now, present tense, eternal life. And does not come into judgment. Does that say does not or might not? It says does not. It's a guarantee, a promise God has given you. But it's passed out of death into life. Does that say shall pass or has passed? It says you have passed. And God has brought salvation to you. Uh, remember to explain eternal life is assured again on the basis of trust in Christ alone for salvation. It's not a feeling, not a date uh, in time or a prayer. Salvation comes from trust. Amen? So, no one here can say, no one's ever shared with you how to tell somebody the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, for this to become meaningful... You can't just take that sermon notes and when you leave here, just throw it in some trash can or stick it in your Bible never refer to it. What I'm strongly encouraging you to do as a believer is if, if you're one of those that, that right now has no method, well, to take this and begin, begin to learn it. You, you, can see, you saw how simple it is. And actually, you, know, you think about it, you could share that, if you had to, in about five or seven minutes. Again, We don't want to become rigid. You're going to take this with your own personality. As you learn it, you'll be flexible with it. But you can't be flexible until you first get confident with what's here. And and you'll learn that. So that, uh, I think it was Alex that read the verse from 1 Peter 3, that we're to be as believers what? Prepared. So when somebody asks us, an unchristian, what's our hope that we're, we're ready to answer? We know what to tell them. Uh, that they might come to know Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. And as we move into the invitation, of course, it's very, very obvious that this has been uh, somewhat of a unique message, uh, an equipping message uh, for believers on how to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. But if you're here and you do not know Jesus, you've never put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior, to be your Lord, You just heard the gospel, and you right now have an opportunity to place your trust, to place your faith in Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection, and we would encourage you to do so. And we trust that God has brought His conviction to you. We trust that God has penetrated your heart with His light, that He's drawing you, and as He draws you, that you will step out and place your trust in Him. And as you place your trust in Him, He promises to give you the gift of eternal life. And that eternal life doesn't begin after death begins right now. As God Himself occupies your life and He changes you. That's the most beautiful thing about the gospel. One of the greatest benefits of the gospel is I put my trust in Jesus... He regenerates me. He literally changes me. He begins to change your desires, your want-tos, your loves, your values. And you begin to discover His wonderful plan for your life and to be able to fulfill that destiny. So, yes, put your trust uh, in Him. Father, uh, first I pray for every believer in this room, every follower of Christ. Um, Lord, again, as we acknowledge at the very outset of this series, concerning this area of evangelism, uh, we become very intimidated. Uh, We struggle with fear. I struggle with fear. Uh, 
and intimidation. We all do. And uh, we see ourselves as terribly inadequate. But Lord, help us to see that you've chosen to use inadequate people, ordinary people. And in that inadequacy, for us to know your adequacy. And Lord, I hope we've seen we don't need to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. We can't save a single soul. You're the only one that can convert a person. You're the only one that can bring conviction. We're simply to bring Christ to the non-Christian through, as we talked about, our contact, conversation, and opportunities to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we trust as we do that, as we look for those opportunities, seize those open doors, we pray that you will bring conviction on what we share that you'll bring conversion to the hearts that we share with uh, because you alone can do that because salvation is from the Lord. And so, Lord, use us. And then, Lord, if there are any here that do not know you, as I did not know you many years ago, and as they've heard the gospel, uh, I pray that they'll put their trust in Christ's death and his resurrection, who he is, what he did for them, they will trust Him, and as they trust them, that you will be true to your promise to save them and bring them new life, for it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen. As the invitation is extended, I'll be standing at the front uh, to receive anyone that has a decision of any public nature, a public profession of faith. Uh, you may have been visiting our church, a desire to become a member here at Edgewood Baptist Church. We would love for you to become a part of this church family, and our tradition is that you present yourself at this time during the invitation just so we can get your face before the people to begin to uh, show our love and appreciation for you. And then there's an orientation class that I take you through and a couple of other things uh, to bring you to full membership. But we would encourage you to do that as well. Uh, but uh, stand as the invitation is extended, and uh, let's all uh, respond to the truth that we've heard.